Hey everyone, you are watching or listening to Multipolarista. I'm Benjamin Norton, and today we are talking about a soft coup that just took place in Pakistan. Now, this is, is extremely important. It's not getting enough coverage in Western media. Pakistan is one of the largest countries in the world in terms of population. It's the fifth largest country on earth, and it is a major power. And the democratically elected prime minister, Imran Khan, was just overthrown. And the U.S. government has its fingerprints all over this coup. In fact, in many ways, this kind of soft political coup is similar to the U.S.-backed coup in Brazil, which is another very large, important country, in 2016, in which the president Dilma Rousseff was overthrown through a kind of impeachment proceedings on these fake charges of corruption. We saw something very similar. This is a kind of color revolution playbook, although I think in many ways in the for the U.S. it's kind of backfired because we saw that the National Assembly in Pakistan voted in this um, this motion to overthrow Imran Khan. And in response, we've seen massive protests all across Pakistan in numerous cities. Today is April 10th, and we're joined by a Pakistani scholar, a brilliant writer and activist who has been writing about this and who has been involved in these protests. He's going to explain today what he's seen in Pakistan with these massive protests. I guess actually there in, in Pakistan, it's April 11th. It's very early. So I want to thank you for joining me so early. Uh, we are speaking with Junaid S. Ahmad. Um, Junaid is, he teaches religion and world politics. He's a professor and he's also the director of the Center for the Study of Islam and Decoloniality in Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan. And Junaid is a great writer. I've been following his writing for a long time. If you want to understand in English what's going on in Pakistan, definitely read his writing. He just published a really good article over at multipolarista.com, and it's called Pakistan Warns of Foreign-Backed Regime Change Attempt to Disrupt China-Russia Alliance. And it's a great piece because it's also a very prescient piece. He wrote it on March 31st. And it's a great piece because he goes through and explains clinically all of the reasons why the United States would like to overthrow Imran Khan. Unfortunately, it looks like, at least for the short term, they've succeeded in removing this populist prime minister in Pakistan. So, Junaid, let's start there. Can you talk about what you've seen in the past 48 hours or so with the impeachment, the soft coup? of the Prime Minister Imran Khan and the massive protests we've seen all over the country. Well, first, thanks, uh, Ben, for having me. Um, and thanks for your kind words. Those kind words can be multiplied when we are actually speaking about you and your work. I was <laughs> telling you that uh, not just myself, I think my students and others here in Pakistan are even bigger fans of, of your work. And we're completely, uh, we're so grateful to you. Uh, for the work that you do and uh as far as the time you can thank uh ramadan yeah. <laughs> hours for um my <laughs> ability to do this so yes, hey, ramzan mubarak to you Ram ramzan mubarak to all of the south asian muslims ramadan mubarak to all muslims out there thank you ben thank you so much ben <clears throat> so <clears throat> as you describe we have a situation uh here in pakistan the uh, situation here has been uh, very, very interesting over the past 48 hours. 
Of course, it began with the National Assembly uh, convening once again at the orders of the Supreme Court, uh, which called upon it to go ahead with the motion for a no confidence vote, which was uh, moved by the uh, so-called opposition, uh, you know, uh, two weeks ago now. So uh, they went ahead uh, with the session that began early Saturday morning in Pakistan. And uh, you had uh, both the opposition, but also uh, members from uh, Imran Khan's political party, the PTI, Pakistan Tariq Saf, or the Movement for Justice, you had many of them give very, very compelling speeches um, about how uh, this is exactly what not only Imran Khan, but of course many uh, observers of Pakistan see it as, and is th that's a Washington-backed uh, judicial coup uh, that's taken place in Pakistan, of course, with the entire opposition uh, bought to in, in for that project, as well as, we'll get to this later, key elements within the military as well. Uh, so uh, that the parliament convened on Saturday. You had, it was actually very, very interesting because you did have coverage uh, perhaps mistakenly by a, a media which has otherwise been incredibly anti-Khan, uh, you had coverage of these incredibly uh, compelling, powerful um, speeches being delivered by various members of uh, the party, people like the foreign minister, Shah Mahmood Qureshi, Shirin Mazari, um, who's been the minister for human rights. And it was fascinating because uh, they had pointed to this long history of U.S. meddling inside Pakistan, support for various military dictators, support, as we know, in so many countries of the global south of a, quote unquote, civil society that basically uh, does the bidding for, for Washington and other Western capitals. So you had a very uh, interesting and instructive history uh, given by these uh, various members of the party uh, and which, you know, certainly moved uh, many of the people watching it and many of the people but who already knew about that history, about how what's going on right now is very much a part of that history, right? And this is, of course, something which much of the opposition, many of their um, intellectual supporters in the country, elite sections of civil society, this is a history that they want us to forget, that type of U.S. intervention in Pakistan. And so at the end of it, after more than 12 hours of such heated exchanges in the National Assembly, they went ahead with the vote. Again, the even though there was so much, even within parliament, support for the, this, the sitting government, they did not want to be held in contempt of the Supreme Court's order. So they went ahead with the vote. And uh, the the opposition thought it, you know, had by this point secured so many of uh, defectors from uh, Imran Khan's political party. It also was able uh, to secure some of the coalition members of that party to then turn over to their side. Uh, but when the actual voting take took place, uh, it was very close. Basically, they won it by uh, two votes. You needed uh, 172 votes. 
um, to oust the government in this vote of no confidence, and they got 174. So it was it was very close, and we'll get into kind of he, how even that came about, how they were able to uh, corruptly secure these uh, these uh, votes in the first place. But there was a lot of confusion at that point, a lot of questions about what is going to happen now. And there was a lot of, you know, a lot of people felt uh, incredibly disheartened, despaired, sad over what happened. But we really didn't know what was going to happen in the next, uh, you know, 24 hours. Now, Imran Khan had called for a uh, a rally after um, the, the evening prayers uh, yesterday on Sunday uh, to just show you know, people showing with their support for Imran Khan. Now, we have to remember a lot of our um, liberals in Pakistan, as well as abroad, like to make comparisons about his speeches now and his uh, call for popular uh, demonstrations and protests in, as a, compared to what Trump did on January 6th. You know, this is the favorite comparison go, making the rounds. However, Imran Khan has... Com- insisted throughout this process that these protests, whatever they're going to happen, they must remain peaceful. That was his condition. And uh, the the great news was, at least for people that, that are certainly supportive of Khan, or at least uh, very uh, opposed to the corrupt opposition, was that we have had the largest demonstrations in the history of the country over the past, now you can say, 12 hours. And, you know, city to city, town to town, you know, it's not like this was limited to some some urban area here or there. Uh, this was literally in every nook and corner of the country, uh, Ben. And so th- this is where we are right now. No one expected, and I tell you, Ben, not even those who were sympathetic to Khan expected such a popular outpouring um, for him. You can... Uh, you know, you see the images, the videos, the people, the excitement, and it's it's also it's also beautiful in the way it's incredibly disciplined and peaceful. Uh, these demonstrations, not a single act of violence, to my knowledge, uh, right now, which is incredible considering the numbers uh, in this country, and also considering the type of repressive security apparatus uh, we 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 tend to see in, in Pakistan. So that's kind of like what's going on right now. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I was just going through here and looking at some of these images of these protests. I mean, we're talking about absolutely massive protests all across the country. These are, I mean, Pakistan's a very big country, over 200 million people. But I mean, these are enormous protests. And the fact that it's not isolated in one city really does show that Imran Khan has massive popular support. Now, I remember when Imran Khan was elected in 2018, and I remember the media narrative about him. And I, you know, there was this term they always repeated in the Western media: Taliban Khan, Taliban Khan, right? Because the idea was that Imran Khan is this Islamist populist, and his party is, you know, it's the movement for justice. And he talked about, you know, helping poor and oppressed people, but he also, unlike a lot of the liberal elite in Pakistan did so in a framework of Islam, which is, you know, common in in many Muslim-majority countries. Certainly in Iran, the Islamic Revolution, you know, used Islam as a kind of liberation tool. 
But what's interesting is to see how when he when he entered office, there was this also a simultaneous narrative that Imran Khan could only enter office because he had the support of the military. And of course, for people watching or listening who don't know the history of Pakistan, the military is the most influential, most powerful institution in the country. It has done many different coups, often backed by the U.S. The, Pakistan was governed by the military under the dictator Ziaul Haq for, for many years, who was a brutal U.S.-backed dictator. So the narrative was interesting. It was that simultaneously, he was this dangerous Taliban sympathizer, Taliban Khan, but simultaneously a stooge of the military. And that was the narrative going on for a long time. Although you mentioned, Junaid, that now it's pretty clear that, that Imran Khan lost the support of the military. And I think part of that is because the military is very accountable to the United States and the U.S. has been pressuring the military. And, and, and we saw that the head of the military, the chief of staff of the army, gave the speech in which he condemned Russia over its military operation in Ukraine. And that was important because Imran Khan had refused to condemn Russia. In fact, this was actually in some ways, uh, you know, I think what sealed his fate. But as you pointed out in your article, Imran Khan was actually in Moscow on the day that the Russian intervention in Ukraine began. On February 24th, you can see this tweet here posted by the president of Russia, the, the Kremlin Twitter account. And it shows Imran Khan, you know, he's very tall, meeting with Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin. That was the day that Russia initiated this military operation in Ukraine, which of course put Imran Khan in a very precarious situation. But to his credit, he refused to condemn Russia. And he also announced after this meeting that Pakistan was going to, to buy wheat and energy from Russia at a very low price. Now, this was an incredible development because throughout the first Cold War, Pakistan had been a major ally of the United States against the Soviet Union. And although Pakistan historically has had very good relations with China, it has not historically had very good relations with Russia. It, my understanding is that Imran Khan actually helped really improve relations with Russia. He also helped really improve relations with Iran. And of course, for the United States, Russia and Iran are two boogeymen. And of course, China. But I'll say regardless of who's in power in Pakistan, Pakistan is going to have good relations with China. So I, I want to talk about, you mentioned something very important. Uh, you know, uh, Imran Khan has been an outspoken supporter of Palestinian liberation. He has refused to normalize relations with apartheid Israel while we see these Gulf monarchies like Bahrain, the UAE, normalizing with apartheid Israel. But I kind of laid out the geopolitical element. So I'm wondering if you can expand further Let's talk about Imran Khan's foreign policy, the, the narrative that he so-called Taliban Khan, that he was supposedly supporting the Taliban in Afghanistan. Although I, I should mention for people who don't know, the Pakistani Taliban is very different from the Afghan Taliban. The Pakistani Taliban is much more extreme. They've carried out horrific attacks. And most famously in Peshawar, they, they carried out this horrible attack on, on a school and killed, and killed youth. So talk about this narrative that Imran Khan is supposedly Taliban Khan and then his foreign policy and his relation with the military. Right. I mean, although, Ben, that was a very impressive layout of, of, of basically all the major points uh, which have been 
the in in some ways the inflection points of where these pressures are coming from uh, on uh, to to oust Imran Khan throughout over the past not just weeks not just months but basically since he's come to power. Uh, so let let's go through them. The the I, I'm glad you began with the the way he's been referred to, and that is Taliban Khan. And you know I I almost think we should be a little bit uh, forgiving to the to the Western media because they're getting these terms from our homegrown uh, native you know Islamophobes and Orientalists within Pakistan itself. That's where this term comes from. And the origins are very simple. Uh, Imran Khan, like much of the international uh, left, uh, if they weren't, at least they should have been, opposed the the war on terror and specifically uh, opposed the quote-unquote AFPAC theater of the war on terror. And his reasoning was probably many uh, something that we all share. It was both immoral as well as counterproductive in the sense that uh, this is not going to end milit militancy or terrorism. It's going to actually provide further fuel for it. He was absolutely right. Uh, so because of his opposition to the American invasion of Afghanistan, the spillover effects into Pakistan, which were incredibly severe, I'll get to that in a second, and his opposition to the to Pakistani collaboration in that effort, uh, which entailed in its most uh, destructive uh, way the uh, Pakistani military operations in the northwestern areas of the country, actual military operations, which led to massive killings, massive displacement. We're talking about millions of people internally displaced. Uh, and as I said, for Imran Khan and many of us, the consequences were going to be pretty obvious, and that is uh, more and more uh, anger, frustration, and, uh, and and resentment in those communities, which would only entail more, more conflict and more violence. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, and Sinead, sorry to cut you off really quickly. I, I just want to share a video. I remember the first time I ever heard of Imran Khan. Well, for people who don't know this, I probably should have mentioned this at the beginning. Imran Khan was a famous cricket player. And of course, in South Asia, cricket is a massively popular sport, like baseball in, in, the, in Latin America and the US. But I remember the first, I, I don't know anything about cricket or sports for that matter, but I remember the first time I ever heard about Imran Khan was when he led these massive protests against the US drone war. And I remember, you know, I was involved in the anti-war movement in the US and, and protests against drone strikes and the Obama's Obama administration's escalation of the war on terror. Here's an article and a video from the BBC, you know, British regime media, back in 2012. And it shows Imran Khan leading these large protests against the U.S. drone war, these U.S. drone strikes. And I remember, and you can see uh, these, uh, you know, these images where they were kind of taking the, the marketing style of Obama with like the hope and the, <laughs> that graphic design style. So I remember seeing those protests and being like, wow, this guy's pretty interesting. So what we're really getting at here is that the US has been very critical of or skeptical of Imran Khan since before, well before he even became prime minister when he was holding these protests against the war on terror and the drone war. 
And then, I mean, he's done many things since then. Let's talk about the geopolitical reasons for the U.S. Back, backing this coup against him. For instance, in 2020, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, Imran Khan called for the U.S. to lift its sanctions on Iran, which is another thing that you can sure really rustled Washington's feathers. I'm sure they were angry about Pakistan saying that not only we want to improve relations with Iran, but we want sanctions to, to end on Iran. And then, of course, there's also the, the question of Imran Khan's very close relationship with China and with Russia. You know, I mentioned earlier that Pakistan is very close to China. China and Pakistan have an important economic and infrastructure project called the CPEC, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. And I mentioned Russia. I think, honestly, at the end of the day, probably one of the most important factors in this U.S.-backed coup, this political coup against Imran Khan, is the role of Russia. So Absolutely. really quickly, I want to get up uh, an article that I wrote I wrote following up on, on your excellent analysis. And this is just providing, you know, a few days ago, this was providing more details when Imran Khan named the U.S. diplomat involved in this coup. And just to summarize it for people who are uh, just just listening and not watching, this is an article I published called Pakistan's Prime Minister Accuses U.S. Diplomat of Conspiracy to Overthrow His Elected Government. And he named in, in a speech, rather in a meeting with members of his PTI party, Imran Khan singled out Donald Liu, Donald Liu is the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of South and Central Asian Affairs. And according to Imran Khan, the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State, Donald Liu, threatened Pakistan's ambassador to the United States and said that there would be, quote, there would be serious, quote, implications if Khan was not overthrown. And he also basically said that Pakistan would not be able to improve its relations with the U.S. if Imran Khan stays in power. And Imran Khan also said that the U.S. sent him a threatening letter. And in that letter, specifically, it, the U.S. was angry because Imran Khan refused to allow the U.S. to build military bases in Pakistan after it withdrew from Afghanistan. And this has been confirmed not just from his statement, we have articles going back several months showing that the U.S. was trying to create CIA drone bases in Pakistan and also in parts of Central Asia like Kazakhstan and other countries in order to continue drone strikes in Afghanistan. But all of them said no, including Central Asia and including Pakistan. So I, I want to share really briefly here. This is a clip that went viral on Twitter of the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asian Affairs, Donald Liu. This is him speaking in a Senate hearing on March 2nd. And in the second hearing, in the Senate hearing, he makes it clear that the U.S. State Department was pressuring Pakistan over its refusal co to condemn Russia over its military operation in Ukraine. And again, I want to remind the audience that Imran Khan was in Moscow meeting with Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin on the day that the war was launched by Russia in Ukraine. And he refused to condemn Russia, which really has angered Washington and was one of the main factors behind this coup. 
here here is the statement he's being grilled here by this neoconservative democrat this u.s senator and in this is donald lou the u.s assistant secretary of state being grilled as to why the u.s is not turning up the heat on Imran two Khan. other countries in your jurisdiction under south asia obviously you have the, the stands as well uh pakistan and sri lanka that also voted to abstain uh, from this vote uh, can you talk briefly about your disappointment in those decisions and what efforts were made uh, with respect to those countries i was on the phone at six o'clock last night speaking to the uh, Sri Lankan ambassador here. My colleague in the bureau was on the phone with the uh, Indian DCM. We have worked very hard. I'm sorry, with the Pakistani DCM. So there he corrects himself and says that the State Department, they were on the phone speaking with Pakistani diplomats after this. this he's talking about the, the UN vote to condemn Russia over its, its military intervention in Ukraine. And he's saying that the, they're complaining that Pakistan abstained in that vote and refused to condemn Russia. So this is the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State saying, yes, we were pressuring Pakistan over its refusal to condemn Moscow. <coughs> to try to convince them to vote um, in favor of this resolution. Um, what's, it is disappointing how many countries have abstained. I would also look to how many. Can I can I just ask, favor. Mr. Ambassador, did did anybody in the administration pick up the phone and call the Pakistani foreign minister or the prime minister? Of, uh, so you get the idea. I mean, he's grilling him and saying we need more pressure on Pakistan because it's already bad enough that Pakistan and China are such close allies. But now Pakistan is improving its relations with Russia. It signed economic agreements with Russia and. Pakistan is becoming a part of this Eurasian integration through the, the Belt and Road Initiative, through the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, and through the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So can, can we just kind of talk about Pakistan's role in this growing Eurasian alliance and, of course, why that scares the U.S. so much? Absolutely, Ben. I mean, I'm glad you played that clip. It's, it's really funny the way it ends uh, with, with, with this end asking did you pick up the phone and try to call the Pakistani government? I mean, the, the foreign minister. And of course he didn't because that's not who they're communicating with at the moment. Um, it's everyone but the, the, the Pakistani government in Islamabad. And their calculation in in what, what happened, you know, we can call it lettergate, um, which was basically <laughs> um, the, you know, this, uh, you know, Assistant Secretary of State, uh, Donald Liu, uh, getting directly in touch with the Pakistani ambassador. Um, this is, of course, what we what we have direct evidence of. Of course, we we also now understand, in, obviously, in contact with everyone <laughs> except for uh, the Imran Khan government in, in Islamabad. But basically, issuing this, uh, you know, speaking to him, and then that recorded uh, minutes of the meeting, basically saying that either, and this is before even there is a motion for a no confidence vote. So either some proposed no-confidence vote succeeds uh, in ousting Khan. And in, in that case, we will forgive you. Forgive you for what? But we're, we're willing to forgive you. For and the if sake not, of being independent. Right. And if not, then it's going to be incredibly rough for Pakistan and you'll see the consequences. This is before even any motion is proposed, which is 
which which is what uh, gives credence to the idea that yes, this is entirely a foreign engineered, uh, an engineer by Washington, a type of domestic coup within within Pakistan to overthrow Imran Khan. But behind it, the immediate reasons are exactly what you say. The the immediate well, engineered. I'm sorry to cut you off, but also there's the allegations are that the U.S. embassy behind the scenes was basically whipping votes, getting all of the opposition members on board to vote for the no confidence motion to make sure that it goes through. Just as, you know, when there's votes at the UN, the US behind the scenes is calling all these countries, threatening them, telling them they have to vote along with the US at the UN. Mm. I mean, they, this is meddling. The US embassy was working with the opposition to make sure that the no motion, that the, the no confidence motion went through. Absolutely. I mean, and that, of course, as we're talking about uh, what what's happened over the past few weeks in which we've, you know, and, and actually even before that, but in we've seen direct, uh, you know, as you correctly say, U.S. embassy, uh, uh, you know, working with uh, local with politicians in coming back and forth from the embassy. You know, I mean, a lot of this stuff, you know, it was even clumsily done. I mean, the, it's not difficult to get uh, evidence for these. Uh, these meetings. But, you know, beyond that, again, it's important to remember this is why uh, many of our friends in, in, in the Western liberal left um, uh, media and, and activists organizations, uh, they're, they're getting a very warped uh, image of, of Pakistan right now. There's also the, the, the biggest, the most uh, uh, significant way in which Washington and other Western capitals have infiltrated uh, Pakistan is through uh, "Quote unquote elite civil society through the media. I mean, you can, you know, this is one of those instances in which we constantly hear someone like in Latin America, uh, whether it's for Chavez before him or Maduro, being so authoritarian and repressive, and supposedly being so repressive of the media when you can't turn on a darn Pakistani channel which is not anti-Khan, right? I mean, it's 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 amazing how they can get away." With outright lies, you know, it's, it's it always it's the same in Venezuela. I mean, I've been to Venezuela several times. There is a very vicious, very hostile right wing media, and it's all over the place. And it's the majority of the media, but I mean, it's incredible it's, it's how they can get away with this, right? I mean, I'm even I speak to uh, family all over the world, and they're like, "Darn it, we can't find a single channel that's sympathetic to to Khan." All these Pakistani channels, and yet, you know, Imran was the most repressive, and so on. Anyways. But I'm glad that the immediate geopolitics was was exactly as you say. The relationship with, with China has, of course, always been strong. But under Khan and the type of leader he is, it, it was definitely strengthened. There was actually a very strong uh, personal relationship uh, with President Xi Jinping that Imran Khan had, had cultivated and developed and which was uh, seen uh, when, uh, he, when Khan got a special invitation to attend the Beijing Olympics. Uh, of course, before that, he had he had gone several times to to Beijing as well. So there was a very close relationship there, building on an already existing very close relationship between the two countries, and especially uh, which focused on CPEC, as you mentioned, the Chinese-Pakistan Economic Corridor, uh, the flagship project um, of of the BRI Belt and Road Initiative in in South Asia. But in addition to that, as you correctly say, on the sidelines of the Beijing Olympics. Putin extended an invitation to Khan, which was incredible. Exactly, you know, what we've been saying, what you described. Otherwise, more or less an adversary from the period of the war, of the Cold War. The uh, Russia had always been close to 
uh, India. So when he, he sees this invitation, he gladly accepts, you know, this is another regional powerhouse. We're in the same kind of Eurasian integration project, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, as you mentioned. This is a great way to kind of improve ties with a country which otherwise we've been adversaries with. He accepts the invitation. He lands in Moscow. He didn't know that this would be the day that the Russians uh, then, then launched their invasion in Ukraine. And immediately he's being contacted by every Western government, immediately denounce your host, immediately condemn them. I mean, as he gets off his plane, I mean, which they would never do to even one of their own if they were visiting, you know, Russia. But they feel free to do that to Khan. Khan resists. He's like, this is absurd. You know, I've just landed here to meet with the guy. So, you know, and he, he refuses to. It's not like he's coming out and openly supporting it. But he's like, no, this is not the proper protocol and the way we conduct diplomacy. And since that time, he said that, look, this is unfortunate that there needs to be some type of diplomatic resolution. And in fact, at the OIC summit in Islamabad, he uh, he openly called for mediation by the, the Chinese in the conflict, um, you know, calling upon uh, the foreign minister who had attended that, attended that summit, which was quite significant. Chinese have usually no business attending a organization of Islamic conference summit. This is the first time we saw them there, which kind of also affirmed uh, their uh, embrace of Khan as this kind of uh, leader in, in the Muslim world. But so Khan came back and he emphasized this. Uh, but of course, uh, he there was outrage in Western capitals that he didn't denounce them while he was in Russia. And why did he visit Russia, which, of course, he didn't know would uh, correspond to their invasion of Ukraine. So when he gets back, they write him a, a strongly worded letter saying, OK, now denounce and condemn <laughs> Russia now that you're back. To which he says, I'm sorry, we are not your slaves. We have asked you many times to condemn Indian, uh, the occupation in in Kashmir. You have not. We've asked you many times to condemn Palestinian, the Israeli uh, brutality and occupation in in Palestine. You have not. Why do you expect us to just, you know, uh, immediately do whatever and, and, you know, to to, do whatever uh, orders that you give us? So th- this was very popular in Pakistan, very popular throughout the Muslim world and very popular, in fact, throughout the global south. You know, we had we have people like uh, the grandson of Nelson Mandela, as I was pointing out earlier in South Africa, expressing complete solidarity and support uh, with, with Imran Khan, which tells you this is not just a Muslim world phenomenon. This this has actually, uh, you know, despite kind of a media blackout on on this on on who Khan is what he represented etc media blackout or just a portrayal that comes from our neoliberal elites uh within the country we still have people throughout the world significant individuals that have obviously uh, you know we, we affiliate them with social justice movements like someone like chief mandela in, in south africa coming out and and asserting the same thing that look it's an independent country and just like us we have we have attempted to carve out our own foreign policy. Pakistan has, has the right to do sort of the same. The Indian thing is, is important, uh, Ben. Uh, India, as you say, it's it has positioned itself as the U.S. ally in particularly containing China and being a member of the Quad, as, as you mentioned, and all of these kind of U.S. strategic alliances very close to the Israelis. 
But on this Russian issue, you know, it it also refused to, to, to comply with what Washington and Western capitals wanted to condemn in Russia. It's very simple. They've always had a good relationship, very dependent economically and um, and for its energy needs on on Russia. And in fact, it was very funny during these past few weeks. I mean, Pakistan has praised India, you know, for its you know independence in, in certain foreign policy uh, decisions. So it's they, they can, it's it's ironic. I mean, even they want to pick on Pakistan, but they're unwilling uh, to issue the same condemnations of, of of India in this case. But it's also interesting that India took this position, uh, which which tells you uh, that the Eurasian project is a project to be taken very seriously. And Pakistan, uh, both for China and for Russia, which is what motivated them to invite Khan in the first place. They know that Pakistan is a very central component of this. Now, with the uh, uh, with the Americans gone from Afghanistan, from uh, Iranian integration as well, you know this country that the West attempted to isolate, which then China bails out with you know fifty billion dollars and so on. So the, these developments, as you correctly say, these in fact are the biggest. Uh, you know, th- this is what's the, the biggest anathema in some ways. What what is the biggest irritant? Uh, for West Washington, these capitals, which is, of course, the emergence of, of a Eurasian project that that uh, <laughs> destroys the old war, world order dominated uh, by Washington. Now, that is, of course, the biggest uh, threat emerging. And this is why I say that people should know Pakistan is incredibly important. It's like this pivot state, right? That it either goes this way or the other way. And there's right now kind of a battle taking place. The Chinese don't do what the Americans do, openly kind of uh, engage in regime change operations. But it should be very clear uh, to our viewers that right now, Pakistan is this incredibly significant, powerful, large country uh, that uh, the the Americans are incredibly now, uh, that Washington elites are incredibly nervous, is going the other way, is is being part of a project that's in their region, that Eurasian integration project. And that's what uh, that's what makes them uh, most afraid of what's going on in Pakistan, and explains the the intense activity to get Khan out right now. Yeah, absolutely. In in the piece that you wrote for Multipolarista, you basically you I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that he's kind of bringing back this kind of '60s non-aligned movement anti-colonial rhetoric, which is impressive to see and. I should add on a personal note that in 2019, there was a meeting of the non-aligned movement in Caracas, Venezuela. And I was in Venezuela at the time. And I remember speaking mm-hmm. to a Venezuelan diplomat and I, and I was picking his brain to see how the conference went. And I asked him, you know, what countries impressed him. And he, he named a few countries that, you know, many w- would not be that surprising, you know, Cuba, Nicaragua, Algeria. Mm-hmm. But he also said that Pakistan played a very important role in the non-aligned movement summit and not just that summit. I mean, Pakistan has played a more important role under Imran Khan in these international institutions. Pakistan is a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is a form of integration with China and Russia and actually also India, which is pretty incredible. We'll see how, how that goes. You know, India is part of the quad with the US, which is the anti-China alliance. So it seems like that at some point that's going to break down. India, of course, has a very right-wing, far-right government of Narendra Modi, of the BJP party. 
And I think what's fascinating is, despite the fact that India under Modi has become the most pro-U.S. government in its history as a nation state since independence from British colonialism in 1947. I mean, it's never had such an extremely pro-U.S. government. Mm. But the first time I've ever seen India actually challenge the U.S. is on is on this issue, is on Russia, because Russia is also an important ally for so, India. And I think it look, shows India, that India knows where it's <laughs> where it's located. At the end of yeah. the day, it's in Asia. It's a significant power. So, you know, as much as it's it it's it um, loves its close relationship with the United States for all sorts of strategic and economic reasons. It also, at the end of the day, knows it's it's located here uh, in Asia. And uh, this is a significant this is a great manifestation of its own realization that at the end of the day, we're also dependent uh, what, what what's going on in our region. Yeah, and it's what's interesting is I was saying it, it also shows that if the BJP can be defeated, you know, uh, the reality is that the Indian political uh, situation mm -hmm. is not much better than in Pakistan. I mean, they really need an Imran Khan style figure. The the yeah. Indian National Congress, the INC, which dominated politics for decades, has also become very neoliberal, very corrupt, uh, dominated by the the Gandhi family. And if they can have their own kind of Imran Khan figure who can kind of break that, break out of that xenophobic, far right, you know, uh, Hindu nationalist ideology that that's dragging the country down. I think it really shows that India could be a massive uh, boon to this project of Eurasian integration, because right now it's mostly China, Russia and Iran and Pakistan is becoming part of that process. But if they can if they can somehow get over, you know, these very difficult, I, mean, I don't ever expect Pakistan and India to be close allies, but if they can ever, if they can at least have some kind of rapprochement, which I actually know that Imran Khan tried to do it. When he oh, yeah, I mean, this must be emphasized, Ben. I mean, they spent the, poor guy spent the first kind of, even before he came to power, the first year and a half just begging um, Modi to come to the table. And Modi, for his own domestic, I mean, political reasons, refused to he was playing off of this that look the pakistanis are so soft i mean this is what imran khan said in his u.n speech look i've been going to them trying and modi then uses it in his election look how soft they are and i've refused and then it shows their weakness then imran khan said enough is enough fine you know you and let me call you out and, and look ben i mean i we I, I guess we also always have to be optimistic but the situation in india domestically has been horrible has just been horrible i mean i often Very say bad. that the country where you actually, I mean, we love to speak about, many of many of our friends love to speak about Trump as representing some fascist movement or others, et cetera, where actually there's a real fascist movement that has come to power, I think in the world is actually India. India. That's that's actually a very organized movement from the 1920s, right? I mean, that- Yeah, that is, I mean, yeah. Modi, Modi is part, a lifelong member of the RSS. The RSS is a fascist militia that in its founding documents, including this, this uh, you know, R.S. Goldwalk, Goldwalker, who wrote this founding text, We a Nation Defined. And, and in this book, he cited Hitler and said that mm. that the Hindu nation must, Hindustan, which is, is what he used to refer to Bharat, India, he says, we must purge the, the non-Hindu races. And he said that Hitler, what Hitler is doing for German racial uh, purity is exactly what we should do. I mean, this is like straight up Nazism. When Modi was chief minister of Gujarat, the school textbooks in Gujarat 
a major Indian state, they honored Hitler in this, the official school textbooks. They called him Hitler the Supremo. So, right. I mean, yeah. And of course, I mean, he was in charge also of the a massive pogroms that took right. place there in 2002. Yeah, I mean, we have to remember this was a, a Modi who uh, could not visit the United States, being charged as kind of a, a, a war criminal engaging in crimes against humanities. He was not able to visit it. And now, of course, he's loved. Um, yeah, thousands of Muslims killed. Anyway, the point is that, I mean, the reason I bring that up, it's, it's important to have that context, of course. But I think it does show that even despite, you know, how extreme and fascistic the Indian government is, it does have national interests that force it to, to take this position on Russia that shows that if there could be a more moderate government in India, if they could defeat this Hindutva movement and bring a more moderate government to power and help facilitate that process of Eurasian integration, I mean, I think the future is very bright for India and Pakistan and Iran. And, and I want to share, uh, speaking of India, there's a very good geopolitical analyst and former Indian diplomat, M.K. Bhadrakumar, who I always recommend reading his analysis, his articles. And he had this Twitter thread about the coup against Imran Khan, and he summarized it very clearly. He said, regime change pulls Pakistan back into the U.S. orbit. It has huge implications for the gathering storms in the Gulf. That is, if the Iran nuclear negotiations are to collapse. And then he pointed out some important points here. Imran Khan brilliantly succeeded in stabilizing Pakistan's relations with Iran, whereas for effective containment of Iran, the U.S. needs Iran to have a hostile eastern flank, which is, of course, Pakistan's historic position. And then he also says this is an important question. The timing of Imran Khan's removal and the conflagration in the Gulf linked to the broader U.S. strategy to seize control of oil fields, which would give Biden leverage in the world oil market to smash OPEC plus and hit at Russia, which is the same old Reagan strategy to bankrupt the Soviet economy. So, I mean, we've been spending this, this you know, uh, interview talking about the important implications in Pakistan. But I mean, this is also part of the U.S.'s larger goal, part of the, the new Cold War. The larger goal of controlling the oil so that that Russia is not as so Europe is not as reliant on Russian energy exports, which means that Russia will not have as much uh, revenue coming in from its energy exports. And of course, if the U.S. can try to throw a, a wrench in, in those relations, you know, with Pakistan trying to improve relations with Russia and trying to sabotage India's relations with Russia, I mean, it's it's all part of the new Cold War in addition to trying to punish uh, Imran Khan for having independent foreign policy. Absolutely. And I'm glad you raised the Iran issue because, look, the, the, the way you can view Pakistan historically is primarily not only um, through the prism of, of, of Washington, but of these Gulf countries um, uh, that it's perceived itself to be so utterly dependent upon um, of Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And so... Under Imran Khan, this uh, thawing of ties between Pakistan and Iran um, has, of course, been another huge thorn uh, for, for the Gulf countries, for obviously the United States and for, for Israel. And, uh, uh, and, and you know, that, that, that's, that's also been huge. And one other thing is that this actually began in Pakistan in 2015. It's important to remember that that was probably the first time Pakistan defied an order from the Gulf when 
Saudi Arabia had embarked on its war, genocidal war against Yemen. They they were very much depending on the Pakistanis to help out the Pakistani military, and the Pakistani uh, parliament said no. In uh, fact, I, at first, I remember Saudi Arabia released this list of all of the countries in the so-called coalition, and they had Pakistan on the list. And then Pakistan said, no, we're not part right. of the coalition. Well, they just expected it to, yeah, to say, and after that, I remember again, the, the, the worst of humiliations. We're going to show you now for doing this. The UAE foreign minister, these clowns issue these statements, et cetera. But, you know, it's, it's important to remember, I think 2015 uh, marked a, a difference. Um, and then, of course, it's now come to a head under uh, Imran Khan's uh, term in power. Hey everyone, we're going to take a pause here and continue this discussion in part two. The interview was was two hours, so it's better to have two different episodes. This first half was focused on the geopolitical reasons behind the U.S.-backed coup against Prime Minister Imran Khan in Pakistan. In the second half of this discussion, Junaid Ahmad talks about who Imran Khan is, what his politics are, his his party, the PTI, the Movement for Justice party. And then we also talk about Pakistani politics, the two-party system that has dominated Pakistani politics for decades until Imran Khan, and what the future could look like for Pakistan politically. If you want to support the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash multipolarista, or you can go to multipolarista.com slash support, and you can help support our independent journalism. And we'll see you in part two. Thanks for listening or watching.